I invite you to have a seat. If you have your Bibles, would you go ahead and grab them, open them up to the book of Luke, the book of the Gospel of Luke, Matthew, cha- or, I'm sorry, uh, Luke chapter seven, Luke chapter seven. I'm sorry, Luke chapter five. <laughs> we'll get it. Last week we began a new sermon series, and it was entitled uh, "Who's Your One." Who's your one? And we looked specifically at Matthew chapter 4. We wrestle with this idea of, of what it looks like for Jesus to call his disciples. The main takeaway that, that uh, I encouraged you to walk away with was the fact that in Matthew chapter 4, verse 19, Jesus says to his first disciples, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And so we wrestle with this idea that you cannot be a fisher of men if you are not a follower first. In order to truly be successful as on our, in our call in the Great Commission, we have to first actually be following Jesus. It's a prerequisite. We talked about the fact that you can't take somebody where you've never been. What would you share with somebody who was lost? What would you share with them if you're actually not following Christ himself? This morning, as we continue this, uh, understanding this idea of what does it look like for us to be an evangelistic people and, and, and tackling the, some, some detailed prescriptions on how we can actually move forward and identifying one person, I pray that the Lord would use this passage this morning in Luke chapter 5 to give you even more clarity. I remember when I was a kid seeing a, a commercial for uh, Volkswagen, and it said, on the road to life, on the road of life, there are passengers and there are drivers. Drivers wanted. This morning, there's a, a bit of a sense there. As I read this text, we'll read in just a moment, verses 17 all the way down to 26, we'll see that there's kind of two options for us as Christians. We can either be passengers or we can be drivers. We can be those who are taking action, or we can be those who are passive. We can be those who are in the way and those who are bringing others to Jesus. So if you would, turn with me there again, Matthew. I'm sorry, Luke, I'll get it right. Luke chapter 5, verses 17 to 26. Let's read it. Verse number 17, it says, On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal, speaking of Jesus. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the mist before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven. The scribes and Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sin but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. May God bless the reading of his word. I invite you to pray with me. God, this indeed is your word. You've given it to us. So, Spirit, we are to be encouraged. We're to be corrected uh, thereby. So we pray through your power, through your presence this morning, in your word, that we would be just that. Spirit, we pray this morning that you would reveal Jesus to us all the more, that we would see him clearer. Spirit, we pray that as we look at this text this morning, as we're reminded, those of us who have been healed ourselves, of our story and the day that we met Jesus and the day that we were healed would we both experience joy all the more and with the fire that burns in our hearts to evangelize and to take this message of this man who heals and forgives to the ends of the earth 
Again, we pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. The main point for this morning that I draw out of this text is this, that true healing is only possible at the feet of Jesus. True healing is only possible at the feet of Jesus. As we walk through this text this morning, I just want to stop at three places in this narrative. The first is this, that Jesus was healing. We'll really just kind of unpack this idea of what it is, what it is that Jesus would heal and the conversation that he has both with this man and with the Pharisees. We'll move from the, uh, this pit stop of Jesus being the healer to some standing in the way. Look at this idea that some that morning, that, or that day, whenever it was, we're not, we're not sure, but as, as they gathered around Jesus, that some were standing in the way. Some were actually operating as a hindrance to folks who needed the healing getting to Jesus. And then in, by contrast, lastly, we'll stop and look at the fact that some were carrying others to Jesus. I'll go ahead and reveal a little bit of this to you. If you can only be one, if you have to be one or the other, either standing in the way or carrying others to Jesus, may I implore you, church, to not be one standing in the way, but to be one of the ones carrying folks to Jesus. May that be you. So first, let's look at Jesus, the healer. Jesus healing. Look at verse 17. It says, "On, On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. One of those days, it points back to verse 15. And so we started in 16, but if you just, or 17, but if you just glance back to verse 15, you'll see uh, this is what he's speaking of. In verse 15, it says, in, in, the, in the prior chapter, it says, But now even more the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. And so Jesus is healing, and word gets out, and so this crowd begins to continually wax greater and greater and greater, and there's more work to be done, more prayer to be done, more healing to be done, and, the, and Jesus is fit for the task, and so he takes it on, and the crowd is growing. And one of those particular days that Jesus was healing and the crowds are growing, that's the, backs, that's the backdrop. That's the context. So his, his, his ability is being heard about. It's spreading throughout the lands, all these villages even that the Pharisees are gathering from. And among that group is a heavy representation of, in fact, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And the Pharisees, they were a legalistic sect of Judaism. You may have heard of them before. You've read about them. If you, anytime you read the Gospels, they're just regularly there. And they're typically self-righteous and critical of Jesus and his work. They're just one of many sects there in uh, Judea or uh, Judaism. Um, and additionally, it, it mentions the teachers of the law. And I want to just give you a little bit of understanding there. The, the Pharisees, uh, most of them, uh, I'm sorry, most of the teachers of the law were actually Pharisees. But you didn't have to be a Pharisee and then also be a teacher of the law. I mean, but if you think about it, Pharisees uh, were this particular group in the, uh, of, of legalists, basically. And the, the teachers of the law or the scribes were like the PhD uh, guys amongst them. They're the doctorates. They're the, the, the top level, if you will, and they're all here, not most of them. They're, for some reason, we're not sure why, but they're gathered here where Jesus is. Maybe to hear him. Maybe they were already in town with some other meeting. Maybe the meeting that they all had called together some council was in relation to Jesus, and they thought, well, let's take a field trip and head down and see for ourselves. I'm not exactly sure why, and the, this gospel writer doesn't give us much clarity as to why they're there, uh, so many of them, but here they are. They're gathered, and they're showing up at Jesus' party. Right as he heals and as he teaches, they had heard about this man's power to heal. They heard about his uh, his, his clear thinking and his strong teaching, and they realized that this guy is a danger to the people. And so the Pharisees, in their legalistic state, are there in some ways to to, to identify what's going on and to, and to protect the people from this man who would deceive them in their minds. But more about them in a moment. As, as always, there's a danger in us dropping into a text and not beginning from the, from the, the beginning and, and working forward. And so one of the dangers, even in this passage, is that we would skip uh, verse, seven, or verse 16 that was right before. So let me read. Verse 17 says, And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. There's some, some clarification as to what is it saying there. Why is the power of the Lord with him to heal? Well, in verse 16 the verse right before it, it says, but he, withdrew, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. We would be mistaken if we missed the connection there. The power for Jesus to heal 
was directly related to the ability, to the fact that he would spend time in desolate places and praying. You see, Jesus submitted to God the Father as part of his emptying or his kenosis, as we read about in Philippians chapter 2. Still God, still man, and yet he submitted himself to the Father's will and direction. And how did he get on the same page, as it were? Here, he would spend time in prayer. And his energy would be revised in a sense, and he would be ready for ministry again. And so it's evidence here that Christ's healings are a result of his time with the Father. And I think that's interesting. It's, it's definitely worthy of our, of our note this morning. Even as we, as disciples, begin to imitate and follow after our master, our rabbi. The first recorded words of Jesus in Luke chapter 2 speak of his commitment to his Father. He says, I must be about my Father's business. We read that last week in our reading plan. I must be about my father's business. The first things that Luke records him saying is in reference to his submission and, 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 and dedication to his father's will. And also the last thing that Luke records Jesus in the flesh saying is, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. There in Luke chapter 23. And there he dies. Having breathed his last breath, Luke tells us. So Jesus, the Messiah, was healing those who had come to him under the, 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 dedic- or the, um, the will of his father, and the direction of his father. But here we're given a specific account of one man. Of one man. Verse 18, it says, And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus, but finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and they let him down with his bed through the tiles in the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. We don't know much about this man, other than that he was paralyzed. But the fact that he's paralyzed doesn't tell us exactly what had caused it. So the pathology is unclear. We just know that he wasn't able to walk. It could have been an accident. It could have been an infection for all we know. But somehow, word regarding Jesus gets to this man that was paralyzed, and he knows that he and his friends must get to Jesus so that he can be healed. He knows that he must get to Jesus in order to be healed. This healing account that we read of, we're continuing to study this morning, it's a bit of a unique Account. As a matter of fact, this is the first time that we see somebody healed or even talked about being healed, and their sins are also being forgiven. It's a bit of a unique one, but isn't that the heart of the gospel? Isn't that the heart of the message that we have? Both that we would experience redemption and rescue from our sins, and ultimately that we would experience a restoration to life as it should be. This is the promise for the Christian that here and now we receive and experience redemption and the promise of a full restoration. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel, a microcosm, if you will. He listens to the heart of the gospel. The redemption would precede restoration that is typical. Look at verse 20. It says, And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven. By the way, man is not, he's not speaking in general language. He's not just speaking like he's a total stranger. It is, the term there, man, is used of strangers, but in a kind way. Not a stranger, just some strange man. Actually, many, maybe even your version this morning would, some translate it, friend. Other accounts even say son. It's a, it's a very kind thing to say, but... It is the term for man. So an interesting point that I'd like to make about this statement that Jesus makes is that as he brings this, as this man is brought to him and laid at his feet, that he receives a healing there at Jesus' feet. But it tells us there at the beginning of the text that the Pharisees and the scribes and teachers of the law, they had been sitting there for some time listening to Jesus teach. And yet they don't experience a healing. They don't experience a forgiveness of sin. And yet this man does. And so there must have been some difference Verse 20 clues us in. When he saw their faith, he said to them, Man, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees are scrutinizing Jesus. This man was believing in him. It's not clear to us what he knew about Jesus. But we know this, that he believed that Jesus was divinely enabled to both heal and to forgive. There's a common thought in those days that 
disease, and illness were almost always directly caused by sin in the life of the individual who committed it. Even now, we recognize that. That's still a theme many times. We think, maybe in our self-righteous state, we think, well, maybe that person wouldn't have such a hard time if they would do this. And oftentimes that's true. No doubt, there are things that we do, there are sins that we commit that make our life more difficult. And we would even experience lack of health as a result. That is not always the case. And yet it was true that they thought that in this day, that so often a mental or a physical disease was directly related to some sin in their life. Again, it's partially true. One of the effects of the fall or sin entering into the world is that disease and ultimately death reign, at least for a time. So generally, all disease, it is caused by sin. We can trace it back to that. And specifically speaking, again, we can cause difficulties in our own lives. Maybe by what we ingest through media or even through physical whatever. Decisions that we make often cause issues in our lives. But in the case of John 9, we see the disciples are thinking this way as well. They see a man who is born blind and they look at him and they think, okay, if it's true that when we sin, it causes some type of an illness in our lives and we bring that upon ourselves always, well, what about this man, who was, this boy who was born blind? And so they begin to wrestle with this as disciples and they say, Jesus, is it possible that this man sinned and then brought upon this blindness on himself? Or is it more likely that his parents sinned? And so the sins of the parents are now passed on to the sins of the, or to the, to the child, and he will bear their punishment. Of course, Jesus corrects them and says, this man was born blind and so that I may be glorified. He kind of breaks this idea, but it's still clearly seen in John chapter 9, but that not just the Pharisees thought this way, but the apostles, the disciples they thought that way as well. And so it's a common mindset. And you can imagine the, the Pharisees, this is where it really gets interesting. The Pharisees are perplexed as they watch Jesus heal person after person. Blind man comes in, Jesus heals him. And what does the Pharisee think? How can Jesus undo God's judgment on this man? If sin has brought this blindness into his life, how can Jesus just remove the punishment now? How is that even possible? And after the blind man, in comes the lame man. Illness after illness, infirmity after infirmity, and Jesus is healing them, and he's re, re, reversing the, the judgment allegedly given by God on their very soul. So they're wrestling with this in their mind. How can he actually do this? Is this a farce? Is this a joke? Is it really, truly possible that Jesus has the power to reverse the judgment of God on the lives of these poor individuals? See, but Jesus clears that up by showing them not only did he heal the man, but he forgives this man's sin. I've just wrestled with that again and again and again this week. Why did Jesus forgive his sins first and then heal him? That was out of the ordinary. And as we hear this story time and again as children, we are just shocked. Maybe even for just for the first time as an adult, we're shocked by the fact that Jesus could heal somebody. And we're even just, just in, in a sense, we're distracted by the fact that they tore the roof off and let this man down, this little harness, and he belayed down to them, to the feet of Jesus. Why did Jesus forgive his sins and then heal him? Here's my thoughts. This is extra biblical in a sense. But I believe that this man truly believes that he has received a judgment from God as a result of his sin. I believe that this man, his, his sin, as David would say, is ever before him. And then he's convicted. Maybe he remembers a time where he was in a drunken stupor and he fell off a ledge and received this injury. Or perhaps he was involved in some form of fornication and had contracted an STD that had, had led to paralysis. And, and by the way, that's actually a thing in that day and age. So we don't know why. And maybe I'm wrong, but I believe that this man knew his sin. And as David said, it was before him. And the Spirit of God was convicting him. And he knew that he would never be made whole unless God himself would reverse the judgment. That God himself, who is kind and is merciful and is gracious, would turn the judgment. If he can forgive sins, he's equated himself with God, though, the Pharisees said. Look at verse 21. They got it. They knew what was taking place. 
Verse 21, it says, And the scribes and Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered to them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up his, or what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. You see, the Pharisees, the Pharisees we like to, to hate on them, but they actually had some right theology here. You see, the, the, the church of Rome, they, they are convinced in the wrong way. They, they, are, they think that actually a man can forgive sins. As a pastor, we can, we, can, we can give an assurance of pardon, but nobody can forgive sins but God alone. And the assurance of pardon that is given by brothers and sisters, even here in this place this morning, as we encourage one another and affirm one another's salvation, is strictly based on Scripture. That if you will confess your sin, Jesus is for, he's, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. And so our authority to affirm somebody's forgiveness is not in ourselves but is in Christ himself and his promise to us. So the Pharisees, they were right in this. And they knew that nobody could forgive sins but God alone. And so as they see Jesus healing after healing after healing, they think, we're missing something. Something's not right. How can he do this? How can he do this? How does he have the right to do it? How does he even have the ability to do this? Is this some sort of sorcery? Is God looking the other way and allowing it in some way? Or is he truly under the power of the divine? So that's why Jesus asked the question, which do you think is harder? It's okay that you heal somebody and you be an encouragement and you help somebody along the way. But if, in fact, you are turning God's judgment against them or in their favor, how is this possible? And so he asked the question, Jesus asked to them, which is harder? Which is more difficult? And I would ask you that question this morning. Think about this. Which is more difficult, to say your sins are forgiven or to tell somebody that was lame, that couldn't walk, to stand up and to walk? Which is more difficult? Well, in one sense, we would say it's, 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 more, it's easier to say that your sins have been forgiven than it is to say, uh, get up and walk. And why is that? Because to forgive somebody's sins, there's, there's little evidence. So I could tell you at this moment right now that I've just deposited a million dollars into each of your accounts. And uh, that actually falls a little bit flat because you can check your online banking. And while you're looking on your phone, you're going to end up being distracted to Facebook. And so just don't go into that whole thing. Just stay focused with me right now. There wouldn't be much way for you to verify that that had taken place. And so I can say things all day long. Maybe when you were a child, you remember hanging out with somebody. And they regularly would just tell story after story after story. And they would dance right in the fray where you couldn't really prove that they were wrong. You didn't have any evidence to say they were right or wrong. But you had this sneaky suspicion that they were lying. That what they were saying was not actually true. And so in this sense, it is easier for Jesus to say, your sins are forgiven because it's not verifiable. Not in that moment. How would you know? You won't know until you die and stand before your maker. And so in one sense, it's much more difficult for Jesus to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. Because if the patient doesn't, then you are found out. So on the other hand, though, it's, it's easier to say, get up and walk. It's easier to say, get up and walk. And the question, it's, it's really addressed to theologians who, who know that only God could forgive sins. So not, Jesus is not going to pull one over, as in some deceptive manner over on the, the Pharisees. They are well aware that in the Old Testament there are sightings and, and recordings of, of healings. And even Jesus, they know, they can see that he is able to heal. And so even they would say, What's well, easier then, we're, we're talking on another level, this isn't a farce, this isn't a trick, but even still yet, it's easier that Jesus would heal somebody than forgive sin because Jesus is not God by their estimation. And so since only God can forgive sin and many people were known to have performed healings, including Jesus, you could say, well, it's easier 
to heal a man, that it would be to do the impossible act of forgiving sin. So which is Jesus leaning into? Which is Jesus trying to convey? What is the correct answer? Well, it's likely that Jesus is saying that both are equally impossible and only possible, or for man, but only possible for God. It would be like me asking you this morning, which is more difficult, for a human to flap their wings and fly to the moon or to flip your tail and swim to Atlantis? Both of those are just as equally impossible for a human being. And so for Jesus to say, which is easier? Which one is more difficult? Well, they're equally difficult. They're equally impossible for a human. Both alternatives are needed uh, or can only be accomplished by divine, divine authority, rather. They cannot be accomplished in and of ourselves, only by the power of God. To forgive sins is impossible for man since it's God's prerogative alone and we sin against him. And again, as David said, against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. And so we can forgive our brothers and sisters and we should as we're commanded to do. But only Jesus can forgive sin. Only God can forgive sin. So to forgive sin is impossible for man. In addition, in order to heal somebody, that is also, as you know, Full well is impossible for us to heal in and of ourselves. And many of you guys know that. It's painful and obvious. You're unable to bring healing to somebody not on your own. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying that he alone is God. He's saying that he is equal to the Father. And more than that, Jesus is saying explicitly there in verse 24 that he is the Son of Man. This was a confusing passage for me or a confusing title for me as I considered Jesus calling himself the Son of Man. Uh, Oftentimes when we hear that phrase for the first time, we think, well, he's pointing to the fact that he is God, but specifically that he's God in the flesh. And that's not what's happening here. Jesus is not saying, I am God the the Son here made uh, uh, incarnate here in the flesh. That's not what he's saying. It's actually a title in the Old Testament that Jesus is pointing to and saying, I am this man spoken of in Daniel chapter 7. If you write in your Bibles, I would encourage you to write next to verse 24, right over top of Son of Man, Daniel chapter 7. Quickly, I want to read that passage to you. We won't go into all the context, but I think there's enough here obvious in, in these first few verses, starting in verse 13 in Daniel chapter 7, that will, will help you to see what Jesus is saying. Verse 13 says, I saw in the night visions... And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there, there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. This is a prophecy of the Son of Man who is the Messiah who is Jesus himself. And so Jesus is saying of himself that he was the one who would descend from heaven and be given dominion over all creation for all eternity. You better know, even as we considered last week, the path or plight, we could maybe even say, of a young Jewish boy. Now he would have known the Old Testament. From ages 5 to 10 and onward up into 17, he had been studying passages there in Daniel and be well acquainted with this idea of the Son of Man. And here Jesus pointing to that. They know it well and he's saying, I am he. I have been given that authority. And I've I've been sent by the Ancient of Days. So there's only one conclusion for the Pharisees to make. Only one. That Jesus has divine power to heal and to forgive sins because he is God. Because he is the Messiah come to save his people from their sins. And so in a real sense, Jesus there is saying, I am the Messiah. Spoken of in Daniel 7, Isaiah 53 even, the one who bore our griefs and sorrows. Jesus here, in a sense, if you think about it, as he heals this man, at one point in his ministry, takes on this man's paralysis as he's nailed to a tree. This man who is healed is unable to move. Jesus, at one point, again, unable to move. He takes on the, the woman's issue of blood as he bleeds. In Luke chapter 8, it's revealed. And then in Mark chapter 5, he takes on death, the death even of the dead girl whom Jesus raised to life. You see, by Jesus' work here in this, on this earth, 
his ministry of reconciliation, he took on the curse of sin. He's not just a God able to create, but he's a God able to take our place and to die in our place as our substitute. And so think about this idea that Jesus is healing. See, as this man is carried in and laid before the feet of Jesus, let down through the ceiling, he received more than just a physical healing, more than just a physical restoration. He received redemption and forgiveness of sins. Let me ask you a question this morning. There's so many needs that you may have in your life. Even this past week, Myself and Brett, we sat down with a, a, a young lady who was in, in need. It was a serious need, a very serious need. And we conversed about her particular situation and considered how we could be a help to her. My mind came to this passage here, and I thought the greatest thing that she needs is not food, it's not a place to live, it's not even backpacks or paper for her kids. The thing that she needs more than anything is to have her sins forgiven. And that's a fact for you this morning as well. So I don't know where you're at. If all this is new to you, if you're just walking in for the, for the first time this morning and hearing this message of reconciliation that we're speaking of and this idea that Jesus is able to forgive sins and this is all confusing to you, let me just say this. The greatest need that you have is that your sins be forgiven, that you receive this healing. And you say, but what about my foot? What, what about my cancer? What, what about my hunger? What about my needs? All these physical things. And while they are true, we don't mock them or belittle the needs that we have physically here in this life. We recognize that as Scripture teaches us that our greatest need is that we be reconciled to God. That we be reconciled to God. Your need is precisely the same as this man, though you are able to walk. Many of you, most of you. You need to know that your only hope, just as this man, is in Jesus Christ. And he knew it. This is why he was healed. Jesus saw their faith. And we know so little about the situation, but we know he had faith in Jesus. And Jesus recognizes that faith and heals him as a result. He answers their faith with forgiveness of sins. And this is a promise that's offered to each of us. That if we will confess our sins and in faith trust Jesus, that we also will receive forgiveness of sins. So my prayer for you this morning is that even through this text being unpacked, that you would be laid at the feet of Jesus and in faith you would look to him and that he would heal you. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus forgives sin and you are the paralytic. Your sin has left you broken, and you need redemption. You need restoration, and you will never, ever experience forgiveness until you make it to the feet of Jesus. And so humbly crawl to his feet and ask for forgiveness. He will pardon. He will cleanse. So as you think of this idea that Jesus is healing, think more than he's able to correct some type of physical ailment. While he is able, much more on display in this text is that Jesus can forgive sins. You find hope and joy. One of my prayers for you as a pastor here, caring for you, is that this morning that anew and afresh that your joy would be restored as you're reminded that this was you. That this was you, possibly, if you're a believer. That this is your story, that you were carried to Jesus. And because of your faith that he gave you, you were restored. I think it would be a good idea to just stop for a moment and to consider who was it that carried you, by the way? Who was it that carried you to Jesus? Or you could say, well, we know that it was the Spirit of God. It was the will of God. Of course, that's true. But who did God use? Who was carrying the bedsheet as you came? Perhaps it was your parents Perhaps it was your neighbor. Maybe it was just a pastor. Maybe, maybe it was a roommate in college. Somebody, though, carried the sheet that you were in, one of the corners, and they led you to Jesus. And in some form or fashion, they let you down at his feet. What a great opportunity for us to rem be reminded of that and to, to even find joy and encouragement in that story, your story, if you have that. But then also to consider, who is God calling you to carry to Jesus? See, Jesus' healing 
And far more than paralysis, he's forgiving sin. He's forgiving sin. And so we see Jesus healing. We can only find true healing at Jesus' feet. But we also want to look quickly at a few other things. The first is that some were standing in the way. Some were standing in the way. This is a bit of a subtle thing, but I want to bring it out to you. Look at verse 17 again. It says, On one of those days as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. We're sitting there. The, the picture is painted, and the house is full. I want you to imagine this. If it helps, close your eyes. Four men carrying a stretcher down a dirt road. People not moving out of the way. I, I, I think I can see that the Pharisees and the teachers, they're there in the way. Some of them are seated right at Jesus' feet. With their, some of them with their arms crossed. Some of them with their, with their chin or beard in hand. Considering how they can dismantle, how can they, how, can they, how, can they, how can they destroy what Jesus is teaching, what he's saying, how can they undermine his ministry? Some that aren't able to get up close are, are standing behind them and looking over their shoulders. Some in the next room removed, looking through the, the, the door frame, looking over and trying to see. They want an edge. They want uh, uh, something that, a piece that they can take and they can argue and chew on and, and try to destroy Jesus. Can't you imagine that as these men try to carry this cripple to Jesus, that their disdain, their frustration, that they're even bothered, that they are, are trying to pay attention, that they're trying to, 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 to take Jesus down, and they're being dis- distracted. They're standing their ground, unable to, uh, to get through because of these men. This is so un- unlike human nature to, for the most part. When we see somebody in a wheelchair or somebody that's been crippled or somebody that's sick, what do we do? Well, our hearts go out to them. In humility and kindness, we, we usually allow them to have the right-of-way. Whether we're on, our, on the road and we see an ambulance coming down the road, what do we do? We pull off. Well, this is the law, but additionally, we do it out of the kindness of our heart as well. But not so for these guys. The goal of me pointing that out is not to say that we're much better than the Pharisees, but to demonstrate the blindness that the Pharisees were experiencing. The self-righteousness that they were enjoying, in a sense. The house is packed full of them. And those who need to get to Jesus are hindered by those who are trying to take him down. And literally, the, the self-righteous Pharisees, they wouldn't allow physically one man to pass through. And if we trans, uh, transform this literal into the metaphorical, when we as people gather around Jesus and, and we operate with a self-righteous attitude, we hinder others from coming to Jesus. So many of you, whether you're a believer or not, you've in some sense are gathered around Jesus. Last week we looked at this idea that some people call themselves Christians and some people are called Christians by others. And yet disciple is such a more strong term. It's a more vibrant term. It paints a clearer picture of who that person is. Because Christian, while it does in in a sense mean Christ-like and and a little Christ in a sense, disciple is an active term and Christian is more of a passive term. And there are many who would call themselves Christians who are standing in the way. Maybe because of their self-righteous attitude. Thinking that they're somehow better. Often the church is accused of this, of being hypocritical and even self-righteous. And while that's not a good excuse to not be a part and to not pursue Christ, oftentimes it is a stumbling block the Pharisees are doing. They're standing in the way and they're holding people back. I just would ask you to consider your own life. Is there in any way a likeness between you and the Pharisees in the sense that you are hindering people from coming to faith in Christ? So the, the Pharisees are standing there and they're literally blocking the way, disgusted that the unclean, those who they think had sinned and brought this upon themselves, would even want to come into the presence of Jesus and take away their good place and their good spot. But maybe that's not you. Maybe it's, you're not self-righteous, but maybe you're just inactive. Maybe you're just there to see a show. Many people there were not wounded. They were not maimed. They were not uh, somehow physically impaired, and yet they still wanted to be there. They wanted to see what was going on, maybe, maybe just for a show. Maybe this was a Saturday and they had a little bit of extra time and nothing else to do. And so they gathered there to see Jesus heal. In one sense, there's nothing wrong with that. But at the same time, they were taking up space. So again, just consider in your own life. Is there in some way, maybe an action 
or something that you're leaving out that's causing you to be a, a stumbling block and in the way. Hagerstown Church, it's my prayer that we would, as individuals and collectively, that we would get out of the way. And more than that, that we would carry those who are maimed to Jesus. There's no room for ineffective self-righteousness here. There's no room for inactivity as well. As disciples, we follow Christ. His goal, His mission in life becomes our mission as followers. We looked at it last week. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. And if the Son of Man has, guess what we have come to do as well? We have also received that message of reconciliation and that work of the ambassador. What are we to do to seek and to save that which was lost? And so the reason the sins of the Pharisees were not able to be forgiven while the paralyzed man's were was because the layman knew he was a sinner and that he needed a Savior while the Pharisees were self-righteous and they stood in the way. So are you more like the lame man this morning? Or are you more like the Pharisees? Do you recognize your weakness and your sin? Or do you like the Pharisees think that in some form or fashion you have earned the grace that you have received? Are you depending on your own self-righteousness or on, or on Jesus? This, this man had nothing to depend on but the, the kindness of his friends and the grace of Jesus. And so some were standing in the way well, that's a sad commentary, it's also encouraging that we see that some were carrying others to Jesus. Some were carrying others to Jesus. And I can't hold back, let's just say it right now. Wouldn't that be a wonderful testimony if people would say that about us? That we were carrying people to Jesus. What a beautiful picture. If each of us grabbing a corner of the sheet or a corner of the cot and we would carry people on a daily basis, not just on Sundays, but throughout the week as families, as individuals, as, as co-workers that we would go after and find those who are farthest from Jesus. And we would carry them to him. Look at verse 18. It says, And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. That was their mission. They were longing to bring their friend, their brother, whoever it was, to the feet of Jesus. It's a beautiful story. Imagine. They're carrying this better stretcher. They're carrying it down the street again. There's dust flying up, and it's a hot day, and they don't know where he's at, and so they take a break at a corner, and they set him down gently, and they say, hey, you give him a drink. I'm going to find out where Jesus is. They just came into the city. We're going to find out where he's at. He's somewhere around here, and so they ask a few guys, and there's some pointing going on. We think he's on the north side of town, maybe, and he, we, th- we heard that he's in a large house there on top of the hill, and so up again, they hoist this sheet up on their shoulders or whatever they're doing, and they take their friend onward closer to Jesus. As they make their way through the city, they round the last corner and they look up the street. It's the last step. They can see people crowded around. You see even a dust stirring up. And they begin to make the last little bit of the hike up that hill carrying their friend who has now become far, far heavier as the day went on. It had to be the right house. People were just piling out from side to side. People gathered in and around like bees in a beehive, and it's noisy but quiet at the same time, and they can hear somebody speaking inside. And as people see them coming, initially they begin to part. They say, well, let's, this, this guy needs to see Jesus, and so they step to the side. But as, as they get closer to the center, as they get closer to the, to the place where Jesus is, it becomes more and more difficult to get their friend to Jesus. That was their desire. Again, 18, they desired they sought to bring this man in and lay him before Jesus. As they, get to the begin, as they get closer to the center, they're being more ignored and some even acting disgusted. They press into one entrance, but they're stopped. Not willing to give up that easy, they gather the sheet up a little bit more. Their hands are, are, are becoming almost numb. They walk around to the other side, and they're beginning to stagger just a little bit, and they say, how about this door? And they try to get in, they're stopped again. The night entrance. Not knowing what to do, but not willing to give up, what do they do? One of them looks and maybe he sees the stairs going up the side. They're on the north side of the, of the house. He sees the, the final step. And so they walk around the corner. He says, guys, I've got an idea. And so they walk up to the, there. Nobody's are there on the roof. It's harder to hear Jesus up there. And so they, they walk up these outer steps. He says, no, 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 follow me. I've got a great idea. And they set the man down and they begin to tear the roof apart. 
Maybe one was a construction worker, and he says, I know how to take these things apart. I know how to put them back together. I can help this guy. He's going to be mad, but let's go ahead and do it. Well, imagine if you were the homeowner, by the way. You'd be losing your mind, right? Right? Who are these guys? This is the last time I invite Jesus over for a party. The crowd that hangs out with him is pretty wild, right? And so they begin to tear the roof up. I noticed two things about this man. Really, I just, let's just lean into this first one for sake of time. Their faith overcame all obstacles. Their faith overcame their obstacles. And I'm speaking of all the men. Jesus speaks of all the men. All of these men had faith. If you think of the, the faith of the friends, the, the faith of the brothers who carried the, the, the cot or the sheet or the bed, whatever it is, they believed fully that Jesus would heal this man. They fully believed that Jesus would heal this man. And so they carry him to the feet of Jesus Nothing was going to stop them. Not the long trip, not the weight of their friend, not the fact that they were thirsty and tired and people were trying to stop them, or that they would be embarrassed, or they may even be yelled at because they were on the roof and they were tearing a part of it off. Nothing was going to stop them. Their faith overcame their obstacles. So as you kind of shift from being the paralytic man to, to a friend, I would ask you to consider in your own life, do you have an eager expectation of somebody coming to faith in Christ? These men did. They believed that Jesus would heal him, and they wanted to get their friend to him. Do you have that? Is that a failure to start, failure to launch in your life, where you've not truly considered what you are to do? No, you are, in every sense of the word, you are a paralytic. And either you have been carried to Jesus and you've been healed, or you have not been carried to Jesus. It's one or the other. But if you have been carried to Jesus, consider this. Are you now expecting eagerly others to be carried to Jesus? These men knew for a surety that Jesus would heal them. They had faith. Jesus says that because of their faith. So they brought this man, and I would ask you to consider, do you have a desire? One of the things that we've talked about with this series, Who's Your One, is, is to be specific. And to ask God, God, would you tell me who it is? Would you give me a desire and a clarity as to who I am to drag and to carry to the feet of Jesus? And so I want to ask you to be intentional with this and to ask the Spirit of God, Spirit, lead me. Who would you have me to share the gospel with even this week and to be praying for and eagerly expecting that they come to faith? Their faith overcame all obstacles. They had identified somebody and they were going after it. Again, they're denied entrance at one, uh, one door. They go to another, and they take it to the roof. This is such a vivid picture. It's not clearly spelled out here. We can imagine that as the tiles are removed, that dust begins to fall. Sunlight bursts through. Screams from the owner of the house are echoing through the room. And down through the opening, as if, as if carried by the sunlight itself, comes this man. And he's set down literally at the feet of Jesus. You see, they were looking for a way. They were not looking for excuses. And so as you think in your own life, who is it that the Spirit of God is leading you to share the gospel with? Know this, that excuses will be a plenty. I shared with my life group this week as we were just discussing our one, who is our one, I shared with them who my one was. I, didn't, I wasn't specific with name, but I, 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 I explained to them who it was. And I began to think, why, God, why would this be the one? Why would you want me to? And I began to think of all the excuses and reasons as to why that should not be my one. That's too difficult. That's, it'd be too hard to get through all these doors, culturally speaking, to get the gospel to them. And they would never be healed. They'd never understand. It'd be so, so difficult. Jesus, isn't there, aren't there easier people? See, we see that a wonderful example here that these men were not looking for excuses. They were looking for opportunities. So again, as we consider these guys and, and their initiative, who is God calling you to share the gospel with? To, to, to be a minister of reconciliation, an ambassador, as he says in 2 Corinthians 5. Who is it? As we come to a close, I want to ask you this question. You could find yourself in many different positions here in this story. You could say, well, I'm, I'm the Pharisee, and I would admit that there's been times in my life where I have been just like the Pharisee, self-righteous, 
and standing in the way. Maybe even perhaps there's still aspects of my life that would look more like a Pharisee than one of the friends. But maybe you are a friend and you are carrying a sheet this morning. And maybe you're tired and there's been obstacles after obstacle after obstacle and it's been difficult. Maybe that's you this morning and you need to be encouraged to continue trying and to realize that you have been sent as an ambassador and the ambassador does the work of him who sent him. And every need is supplied and that is true for you as well. But maybe this morning you're just stuck on the fact that you are the paralytic and that you yourself need healing. Again, I would encourage you to consider this. It doesn't matter whether you're five years old or 75 or give or take 20. This is true for you. That if if you in faith will look to Jesus, that he will forgive sins. And ultimately, one day we will experience a restoration and a full healing. Maybe you see your need to be in front of Jesus this morning, just as this man knew that his only hope was to find Jesus. Well, the invitation is open for you. Repent of your sins and look to Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, as we look at this text this morning, we find in it both correction and encouragement. Encouragement in the sense that you would come to us. That you would uh, offer this opportunity to be both redeemed and restored. And not only just the opportunity, but that you would even provide the faith that's necessary. And that even while we weren't seeking for these this truth and this kindness, and not expecting it to be found, the message was given to us. Now we pray that that would be the story of somebody here this morning, that they would hear the message of reconciliation, this opportunity to be both forgiven of sin and healed from their ailments. That they would turn from their sin and trust in you, Jesus. We pray that this would be the case. God, we also consider the fact that you have called us and you have sent us. You've given this us as your people, as your children, as the church, uh, this message of reconciliation. And so we, we pray that we would be not the Pharisees reverting back to self-righteousness, but that we would be these no-named friends, just one of four, one of three, who carried their brother to Jesus. May that be our testimony as well. And that as we progress through this year, that we will look and count up the names of those whom we've prayed for, and those who we've shared the gospel with, and we'd sit back and see that as you see faith in those paralytics, that you would heal them and that you would forgive their sins. Jesus, we pray these things in your name and not for our glory, but for yours. Amen.